This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is East of Eden, a program devoted to the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. Welcome to East of Eden. This is our sixth episode. I'm Nick Batzig, your host for the show today. And as usual, I am here online with Jeffrey C. Waddington, who is the teacher of the congregation at Calvary OPC in Ringo's, New Jersey. How are you doing, Jeff? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you for asking. How are you, Nick? Good. Good to be back on with you. It's been several weeks since we've recorded anything. Um, Also, we are here today with Dave Filson, who is a teaching pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, Dave and I got to meet at the General Assembly of the uh, PCA, our our denomination, a few weeks back in Louisville. And uh, Dave, it was great to meet you in person. It's great to have you on the show again today. It was good to put a face with a voice. It's good to be with y'all. Yeah, it's always a, a sweet time to get to fellowship with brothers, and uh, it was good to meet you, Dave, in person. It's great, again, to have you on the show. So we want to look at another one of Edward's sermons as we continue looking at his biblical and systematic theology, and, and I propose that we do what is one of my top five favorite, I guess I could say, Edward's sermons. It's It is the sermon that I was encouraged to read very early as a Christian. I had a friend in seminary who was trying to help me get into Jonathan Edwards, and I had kind of bought the the bait that, you know, Edwards preached about hell all the time, and he was just, you know, morbidly introspective to the core, and, and my friend said, you really need to read The Excellency of Christ, and I did. I remember going home and reading it and just really falling in love with Edwards, um, realizing something of the greatness of um, his mind and his understanding of Scripture and the benefit of Edwards. So I was hoping we could look at this today. Um, This is uh, Edwards' sermon on Revelation 5, 5 through 6, where we read, One of the elders said unto me, that is to the Apostle John, Do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose its seven seals. And behold, in the midst of the throne and the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though he had been slain. Um, As we come to look at this sermon together, Jeff, I wanted to kick this off to you and ask you to talk to our listeners a little bit about the history and the context of this sermon. Sure, I'd be happy to. We're told that Jonathan Edwards preached the excellency of Christ in August of 1736. And it's noted in the upper right-hand corner of the first page of the manuscript that this was a sacramental sermon. That is, it's a sermon preached on a Sunday when the congregation in Northampton would have observed the Lord's Supper. And I think it's a an excellent sermon about the excellency of Christ dealing with the with the subject uh, of the Lord's Supper. The sermon is then later published, two years later, as the fifth of what is called Five Discourses on Important Subjects Nearly Concerning the Great Affair of the Soul's Eternal Salvation. Now, M.X. Lesser tells us that this is the only 
book of sermons that Edwards himself was responsible for seeing through the publication process. Uh, Included in that series, and I'm glad to see that there's only five sermons, which means that Edwards could count, is Justification by Faith Alone, Pressing into the Kingdom of God, Ruth's Resolution, The Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners, and then finally, of course, The Excellency of Christ. These were all sermons that were preached originally to the congregation of Northampton. This uh, five discourses on important subjects was printed, at, according to Edwards in his preface, at the behest of the people of the congregation. Four of those sermons, of course, were delivered, or discourses, were delivered at the beginning of or during the time of the initial revival that takes place at Northampton and then eventually spreads to uh, neighboring towns. Uh, This is before the larger revival that will occur a few years later with the coming of George Whitfield. It's interesting that Edwards, in his preface, actually spends most of his time talking about the discourse on justification by faith alone. But this is what he says regarding the excellency of Christ. Uh, What is published at the end concerning the excellency of Christ is added on my own motion. That is, the first four of the sermons were put together at the instigation of members of his congregation. The last sermon, of course, was, was added because Edwards thought it would make a fitting conclusion. Thinking, and this is quoting, thinking that a discourse of such an evangelical subject would properly follow others that were chiefly awakening. Now, what he means by awakening would be, uh, Nick, what you referred to as the hellfire and brimstone. Right, right. Uh, surely the justice of God and the damnation of sinners right. uh, would be that kind of sermon. Then he goes on, uh, again, regarding the, the sermon, The Excellency of Christ, that, that something of the excellency of the Savior was proper to succeed those things that were to show the necessity of salvation. I pitched upon that particular discourse partly because I had been earnestly importuned for a copy of it for the press by some in another town in whose hearing it was occasionally preached. So even this sermon was included not merely because Edwards thought it was a good idea, but because he had been asked to have it published. And Incidentally, he noted that it was preached on more than one occasion, and and of course I've had the opportunity on this program to note that a good sermon, if you have the occasion of preaching out of your own pulpit, is is something that you will want to use again and again as long as God blesses it. Right, and then as Joel Beakey says, then you shoot the horse when the horse doesn't go anymore. Exactly. (laughs) I, 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 I can relate to that very well. (laughs) Um, Well, Jeff, I thought that it was very interesting what what Lesser pointed out um, in the Yale volume in the intro about the juxtaposition of, as you noted, the justice of God in the damnation of sinners and the excellency of Christ and that there was an intentionality, um, just like my friend telling me, hey, you know, go read the excellency of Christ. Because oftentimes, and we've even had some of this pushback uh, with listeners of the Reform Forum toward Edwards, that uh, Edwards was too introspective, you know, too searching. Obviously, he, he has a Puritan theology. He is deeply concerned about personal piety. But again, 
Edwards has, just like the scriptures, I think, a, a balance to him, law and gospel, justice of God, mercy of God, and in the sermon, even how he, he shows that those things, and the whole point of the sermon is how they're brought together in the person of Jesus. Absolutely. And, um, so now it's interesting when Edwards opens this like usual, he does a very short exposition. He doesn't give you a whole lot of the context. He does deal with the fact that there was the scroll in the hand of uh, the one who sat on the throne and, the, and that the, the cry went out, you know, who can open the scroll and that John wept because nobody was found worthy. Um, and uh, Edwards, in his exposition, talks about how that scroll was sealed with seven seals, signifying that what was written in it was perfectly hidden in secret. And then he explains what he believes the seal to be. And I think this is somewhat in accord with what modern interpreters of Revelation, like a G.K. Beale, would say, at least in part, that the, the scroll gets its um, imagery from the Old Testament um, and that it, it is um, a symbol of God's decrees of future events that are sealed up. So God's uh, secret will or his um, providential decree that only he is in control of, and yet that there is one who's worthy to take that scroll and to open that seal. Um, And I love the way Edwards captures in his short exposition that John hears that it's the lion of the tribe of Judah, and Edwards gives this uh, his listeners the sense that um, that John is going to turn around and he's anticipating to see a lion, but he sees a lamb who was slain. Something so different than a lion, the antithesis of what he was told. Um, And that Jesus is both of those diverse, um, those uh, diverse symbols refer to different aspects or attributes um, of the person and saving work of Jesus. Um, Jeff, you mentioned to us earlier, how is the sermon divided up? Well, it's divided up, uh, well, first of all, the doctrine, which you can find if you have the uh, Yale edition on page 565, uh, is this. And this, uh, this arises, as you've already noted, Nick, out of uh, Edward's observation that uh, the opening of the scroll uh, you see at that point, Jesus is described as both the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb. And so the doctrine is there is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. And then basically the sermon is divided into two parts and then the or the doctrinal section is divided into two parts and then you have the application. The two parts are this. One, uh, show wherein there is an admirable, admirable conjunction of the diverse excellencies in Christ, that is in his person. And then, number two, how this admirable conjunction of excellencies appears in Christ's acts. So you find that Edwards is focusing on the typical distinction that we think about in in the doctrine of Christ, on his person and works. That in both, you've got a, a conjunction of diverse excellencies. Right, yeah, that's really, that's really helpful. Um, also to note that when you read this sermon, it's a little different than um, some of Edward's sermons where he's building uh, paragraph upon paragraph in logical, uh, almost sequential order. And I know, Dave, you've done a lot more work with his um, sermon structure and content, but in this one, it just seems like under those two sections, uh, you know, how 
there's an admirable conjunction of excellencies in Christ's person, and there's an admirable conjunction of the excellencies in his work. Um, almost, though sometimes they're not as divided as neatly, almost every other paragraph is a back and forth, a contrasting. How he's a lion, how he's a lamb. How he's a lion in his infinite glory, how he's a lamb in his infinite meekness. How he's a lion in his justice, how he's a, li- how he's a lamb in his grace going back and forth, both with regard to his person and then with regard to his work. Um, Dave, would you like to introduce our listeners just to the theology as he walks us into these, um, these two sections in the exposition of his sermon? Sure. Um, you know, I'd go back to what you said a, a second ago of, of folks who say that Edwards is so overly introspective, that sort of thing. Um, I think Edwards deserves a broad reading of his entire corpus before we start making those kinds of characterizations. Uh, Because, you know, you you could read some of Edwards' works and come away saying that that kind of thing. It's a very superficial, and I think, um, I I don't know, I, I think that's a superficial response that betrays the fact that one has not broadly read Edwards, has not closely read Edwards. Because when you look at this sermon... This is a work of marvelous meditation on Christ. Mm. It is a work of very uh, precise and searching Christology. It really is. Looking at, as Jeff has pointed out, the person and the work of Christ. Almost kind of a, I don't know, an, an ontological economic distinction throughout, mm. if, if I can you know, apply that to, uh, to Christ himself. And as I'm, as I'm reading through this uh, sermon, even though, as you said, Structurally, it's a little bit different than what is uh, what is often typical in Edwards. It, it, it's, it's just this parade of contrasting the glory of Christ and the meekness of Christ. You know, the, the highness of Christ and the lowness of Christ. And as I'm reading it, there are places where I'm I'm reminded of um, of hymns. For instance, you know, he'll be talking about the the deadly wounds that still appear in Christ. And I'm thinking of Wesley. You know, five bleeding wounds he bears. Received on Calvary, they pour effectual prayers, they strongly plead for me, etc. And then he has this emphasis on how in Christ uh, are met the grace of God and the justice of God. And he, he really unpacks that in several different ways. And I'm thinking of, you know, of John Newton, you know, let us wonder grace and justice join and point to mercy store when through grace in Christ our trust is justice smiles and asks no more. And so it's this searching, very penetrating Christology that he's giving to his congregation there. And once again, as we've said so often on this program, you put yourself in the, in the pew with Edwards congregants and they are getting such solid theological exposition. He he is able to assume, I think when he preaches uh, a great deal of theological understanding and theological orientation that he can just launch out and start preaching this way with this, with this kind of wonderful content. Uh, so the idea uh, throughout is this glorious Christ who shows his glory in a number of ways in his person, uh, shows his glory in a number of ways in his works, um, at the same time shows great condescension in his person, especially consider who he is relative to who we are uh, and how we would not be so condescending. We could never be you know, that meek. Yeah. At the same time, he shows in his acts great glory and great condescension. 
Uh, one of the things he brings in, of course, is, is the transfiguration, which I'm convinced is, a, is one of the underserved doctrines of, of the life of Christ. You know, we'll make much of his resurrection, much of his ascension, etc. What about the transfiguration? And Edwards you know, brings that out here. So just a wonderful piece of Christology, I think. Yeah, that's great. I love how at the outset, just under that first section, he um, talking about the significance of Christ's infinite condescension when he says he is one of infinite condescension as the Lamb. He says, none are so low or inferior, but Christ's condescension is sufficient to take a gracious notice of them. He condescends not only to the angels, humbling himself to behold the things that are done in heaven, but he also condescends to such poor creatures as men, and that not only so as to take notice of princes and great men, but of those that are the meanest rank and degree, the poor of the world, James 2.5. Such are the commonly despised by their fellow creatures Christ doesn't despise. 1 Corinthians one twenty eight the base things of the world, the things that are despised God has chosen. Christ condescends to take note of beggars, Luke 16, 22, and of servants and people of the most despised nations. In Christ Jesus, there's neither barbarian or Scythian, bond or free. He that is so high condescends to take a gracious note of little children, Matthew 19, 14. Suffer the little children to come to me. And I love that because... You know, I remember reading uh, this year, last, this last Christmas, um, I was preaching one of the Advent sermons at New Covenant, and I had read a, a Spurgeon sermon where he talked about the significance of Jesus being born, as we know, and Edwards makes a big deal in all his sermons, to a poor virgin who couldn't even pay the sacrificial price for the consecration vow. She had to get the, the pigeons because mm-hmm. she couldn't afford the lamb. So he was born as a, pe- a, a beggar baby, a peasant beg- baby to a poor virgin. Um, and Spurgeon said he was born in a feeding trough so that the basest and most wicked and despised person knows that they could approach him. Mm-hmm. Because had he been born in a castle, we would fear approaching that baby born in, in royalty and dignity. And that's basically what Edwards is saying. The significance of his infinite condescension is that anybody can go to him. And I and love you that. You think about in the in the context in which Edwards lived, uh, society and culture uh, in 18th century you know, America, there was still uh, an expecta- a societal expectation of... Um, of class structure that was that was somewhat rigid, and you didn't uh, you didn't just assume to cross those those class structure lines and barriers, right? Right. Uh, there were societal right. expectations, um, and and Edwards is is you know in one sense transcending all those with the person of Christ. Yeah, that's great. Becoming becoming a friend, right? I mean, he uses that language right. of of friendship. Which you know, Lesser points out in the uh, in the in the Yell volume, the, just the preface to the whole period, that in this particular sermon, the language of friend or friendship occurs thirty times uh, in in the text. Right. Um, now, I would, if if I could, just to balance that aha, with the with the other excellency, uh, and it really, what I was going to say is that. Uh, Edwards proves that Chalcedonian Christology is preachable. Yes. Uh, with, yes. with this sermon. But listen, listen to this. This is from page 566. It's very early in the, in the sermon. 
Christ is the thing. Think of this in juxtaposition to what you've just said about the humility of the incarnation. But this is to Christ is the creator. That's with a capital C, and the great possessor of heaven and earth. He is sovereign Lord of all. He rules over the whole universe and doth whatsoever pleaseth him. His knowledge is without bound. His wisdom is perfect, and what none can circumvent. His power is infinite, and none can resist him. His riches are immense and inexhaustible. His majesty is infinitely awful. We would mitigate one by the other. Right. And what he does throughout this sermon is to not do that at all. And that's one of the most important things about this sermon, Jeff. As I was rereading this again, I, I taught this in Sunday school a few weeks back and then preparing for today. And I said in Sunday school, conservative Christians, and, and especially politically conservative Christians, tend to focus on God is just. Now, I know there's exceptions. I'm making a broad generalization. But we, we you know, especially Reformed Christians, we love the idea of a just God, a holy God, a God that punishes sin. And, you know, we ought to find attention at times with the fact that he is both infinitely just and infinitely gracious. Um, obviously, the cross resolves that, and the person of Jesus re- resolves that. But, you know, and then my liberal friends that, that I don't think understand the gospel— Nice, nice, nice. Love, love, love. That's all that matters. (laughs) And nothing's just, nothing's holy, and they want a nice, dirty God like them, like Gerstner says. And Edwards holds those things, like you just said, Jeff, together so well in this sermon that you come away thinking, wow, I mean, that is the solution. That's the solution to upholding the holiness of God and yet proclaiming freely the bountiful grace of God to hell-deserving sinners is the person in the saving work of Jesus. Right. You, Nick, you had, I think, before we began recording, uh, made note of this paragraph, if, if I may cite it. It's so well written on page, at the bottom of 567 on uh, into 568. In the person of Christ do meet together infinite glory and the lowest humility. Infinite glory and the virtue of humility meet in no other person but Christ. They meet in no created person, for no created person has infinite glory. And they meet in no other divine person but Christ. For though the divine nature be infinitely abhorrent to pride, yet humility is not properly predicable of God the Father and the Holy Ghost that exist only in the divine nature, because it is a proper excellency only of a created nature. For it consists radically in a sense of a comparative lowness and littleness before God, or the great distance between God and the subject of this virtue. But it would be a contradiction to suppose any such thing in God. Again, a powerful exposition of course, of this passage, but also an ex- exposition of properly understanding the Chalcedonian formula. Beautifully put, isn't it? Yeah, yeah and it's properly um, expounding Christology and theology proper. Yeah. Think about it, you know, dealing with the person of the Father, the person of the Holy Spirit. And I wonder, you know, Nick, you're talking about, you know, your friends who are, you know, um, you know, of a of a mind to to downplay or ignore the notion of 
of uh, you know the justice, the the righteousness, etc., the exaltedness of God, and want to focus on grace, etc. And I wonder if at some point it's kind of like you know Luther says to Eck, you know you've um, you have a far too human view of of God. Right. Edwards contrasts the the ability of Christ to be so exalted yet meek at the same time from from our natural ability, if we were so exalted, we, we would never be so meek. And, and I love the way he says there's such right. a conjunction of infinite highness and low condescension in the same person is admirable. We see by manifold instances what a tendency a high station has in men mm. to make them to be of a quite contrary disposition. And I love this. Right. Imagine what it would have been like to have been sitting in the pew listening to this. If one worm be a little exalted above another yeah, by right. having more dust or a bigger dunghill, how much, does, how much does he make of himself? That's awesome. What a distance does he keep from those that are below him? And a little condescension is what he expects should be made much of and greatly acknowledged. Christ condescends to wash our feet, but how would great men, or rather bigger worms, account themselves debased by acts of a far less condescension? And so I wonder if, you know, we, we have trouble... Thinking, and, you know, we've recreated Christ in our own image in, in a certain sense. There's, there's no way he can be so exalted and yet be so gracious because if I were ever that exalted, I know I would never be that, that gracious at the same time. And so, as Jeff is saying here, you could only be in one person. I, I love also how Edwards um, takes that a step further to say it can't even be in the divine being. Right. It can't yes. even be that, that the Father, in essence. And here, you know, Edwards says almost as much in um, The Wisdom of God Displayed to the Angels when he says God the Father couldn't have been the Redeemer, or the Holy Spirit couldn't be the Redeemer because the Father had to act as the offended party and the Spirit had to be the ap- applier, the agent that applies the work of redemption to the purchased you know, he's the purchased spirit for those that Christ purchases with his blood, but that um, that in the same way, no other being, whether divine or created, can have infinite highness and infinite lowness, infinite justice and infinite grace in himself the way that Jesus does. And the, that by the creating of the human nature, which Edwards will make a big deal about, that Jesus essentially takes the complete opposite of what he is by taking flesh to himself, that he, he becomes the one that can only in himself perfectly embody those excellencies, those, I mean, I, I'll even say a paradoxical ec- excellencies, and then not just in his person but also in his work, you know, obviously, mercy and truth meet together, righteousness and peace kiss at the cross. But um, I was really taken back by that when I read this. You know, that's not something you find, even in a lot of historic Reformed authors, those kind of deep thoughts of Jesus is the only person. And, you know, as I think about biblical theology and the, the surge of biblical theological studies, which really is Christology, I mean, progressive revelation as it centers in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why Jesus is so important. This is why we make such a big deal about preaching him preeminently. This is why Paul says that he is creator and redeemer so that in all things he gets the preeminence. It doesn't mean that we want to be Christomonic, like some have charged, you know, only Christ. But, I mean, when you read a sermon like this, 
I don't know how you don't walk away realizing the preeminence of the second person of the Godhead because of all that he embodies in himself in the incarnation. I totally agree. That's well, why I said at the beginning, it's a marvelous meditation on Christ. And this is, the, uh, I guess, dare say, the perfect setup for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Mm. Yeah, this was a communion sermon, right? Correct. You said. And, th- and think about this, too. You know, a sermon like this being preached, you know, Jeff, you touched on the historical context but this sermon is being preached, um, yes, in that specific instance, uh, with a focus on sacramental celebration, but more broadly speaking, this is being preached and published uh, near the outset of the First Great Awakening. Correct. You know, th- this, is sort of, this is sort of helping light the fuse, uh, along with the justification series of the First Great Awakening. So what, what, does, that, what does that tell us? is that in Edward's context, a sermon that is so um, wonderfully, precisely Christological, uh, at the same time, you know, the the Trinity, you know, plays such a part in his theological and and homiletical program, is at the same time such a useful tool uh, in the inciting of the First Great Awakening. In fact, Edward's notes in the preface to the five discourses that these sermons which were used by God as human instruments for the bringing about of the Great Awakening. He desired, because at the time that these were actually published, well, actually by the time that this sermon was preached, apparently the fervor of the First Awakening had cooled, or the initial awakening that was local, you might say, to Northampton and its immediate environs had passed away, uh, and the awakening that we know as the, the Great Awakening hadn't yet technically begun. Uh, he, he desired that the printing and therefore the reading of these sermons would renew uh, spiritual desire in the hearts of those who had initially heard the sermons, mm-hmm. and then for the first time, uh, those who were reading them but who hadn't heard the sermon delivered. So it's, it's a very, very, his desire was that these would be of spiritual benefit to, to the readers uh, of the five discourses. Now, guys, as we move on in our just consideration of this sermon a little bit further, we move really from what is an outstanding analysis of those diverse excellencies, Jesus' lion-likeness, his lamb-likeness in his attributes, I think would probably be the best way to say that, into the lion-likeness and lamb-likeness of Christ in his work, in his... um, incarnate work. And it's interesting that Edwards almost, if you take uh, the, the second point that, that he's out to show how this admirable conjunction of excellencies appears in Christ Acts, what he does is he moves from how these attributes appear in the excellency of um, Christ Acts from the incarnation to his suffering and resurrection. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of a... Um, you almost sense this this building up. You almost sense that it's almost a, it's almost in itself a biblical theological, um, you know, exposition of how these things are so from the incarnation, the birth, um, the lowness of Christ's estate, the sufferings that he adored even at the beginning of his public ministry until he comes and he finally says under the third section of the second point that. Um, Christ's holiness never so illustriously shone forth as it did in his last sufferings, yet he never was to such a degree treated as guilty. 
Christ's holiness never had such a trial as it had then, and therefore had never so great a manifestation. When it was tried in this furnace, it came forth as gold. Then listen to this, and this, is, this has been very helpful to me in preaching the gospel, and, and I hope our listeners will benefit from this. There are many times when I'm dealing with a very heinous sin in the scriptures, one that, you know, it's a faux pas for us to talk about in our society because we're, you know, we fear man and our society is just promoting everything wicked and, you know, everything that the Bible condemns. And I'll often say, now, if you think that this sin is beyond pardon, remember that Jesus was treated as if he was the worst sinner at Calvary. He was treated as a murderer. He was treated as a pedophile. And this is shocking. I, my, my people have found this to be shocking when I go through the different um, abominable sins that we find in Scripture and that Jesus was treated as if he was the worst. And Edwards actually says that. He says on page 578 of the Yale edition, he says, And yet then Christ was in the greatest degree treated as a wicked person. He was apprehended and bound as a malefactor. His accusers represented him as a most wicked wretch. In his suffering before his crucifixion, he was treated as if he had been the worst and the vilest of mankind. And then he was put to a kind of death that none but the worst sort of malefactors were wont to suffer. Those that were most abject in their persons or guilty of the blackest crimes... And he suffered as though guilty from God himself by reason of our guilt imputed to him. For he was made sin for us who knew no sin. He was made subject to wrath as if he had been sinful himself. He was made a curse for us. And Edwards will develop that out. I think we need that in our day, guys, more than almost anything to be proclaimed from the pulpits. What Edwards is doing here in contrasting that God is upholding his holiness in the sufferings of Jesus, and at the same time, Jesus is treated as the most unholy and the most vile. Amen. That's reminiscent, isn't it, of, of Luther's uh, quotation, perhaps some of our listeners will be familiar with, you know, Jesus became the greatest liar, thief, adulterer, and murderer mm. that mankind has ever known, not because he committed these sins, but because he was actually made sin for us. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's powerful. I mean, that's that's what changes people. You know, that's the heart of the gospel. That's the epicenter that, that as Edward says earlier in the sermon, you know, he was made so low that mean, vile, despised sinners can come to him. And he was made so low and lowest, Edwards will say, in his sufferings. He'll actually say, as he develops this, and, and it's so worthwhile, if, if those of you listening have not read this, at least read the section on his sufferings where he says, Christ in his last suffering suffered most extremely from those that he was then in his greatest act of love too. He never suffered so much from his father, though not from any hatred to him, but from a hatred to our sins, for he then forsook him as Christ on the cross expresses it, or took away the comforts of his presence. And then, quote, it pleased the Lord to bruise him and to put him to grief, Isaiah 53.10, and yet never gave so great a manifestation of love to God as then, as has already been observed. So Christ never suffered so much from the hands of men as he did then, and yet never was in so high an exercise of love to men. So those excellencies being so fully manifest in the cross that while he is being hated by his Father for our sin, when men are hating him, um, most, 
he is loving his father and loving men the most. That's wonderful. And uh, Edwards goes on on page 580, says some interesting things here, and I wanted to show some of his biblical, theological, typological uh, treatment of the scriptures. Christ never so effectually bruised Satan's head as when Satan bruised his heel. The weapon with which Christ warred against the devil and obtained the most complete victory and glorious triumph over him was the cross, the instrument and weapon with which he thought he had overthrown Christ and brought him on him shameful destruction. Now, then we jump down uh, in the paragraph. In his last sufferings, Christ sapped the very foundations of Satan's kingdom. He conquered his enemies in their own territories and beat them with their own weapons. As David cut off Goliath's head with his own sword, the devil had, as it were, swallowed up Christ, as did the whale, as the whale did Jonah, but it was deadly poison to him. He gave him a mortal wound in his own bowels. He was soon sick of his morsel and was forced to vomit him up again. And it, it is to this day heartsick of what he then swallowed as his prey. And then finally, and thus the true Samson does more towards the destruction of his enemies at his death than in his life. In yielding up himself to death, he pulled down the temple of Dagon and destroys many thousands of his enemies, even while they are making themselves sport in his sufferings. And so he whose type was the ark pulls down Dagon and breaks off his head and hands in his own temple, even while he is brought in there as Dagon's captive. Yeah, that's awesome. I remember Incredible. reading that. I remember reading that as a young Christian. I think this is probably where I got onto typology, Jeff, was this sermon. Yeah. I, was, I was maybe a year converted when um, my friend told me to read this. And this is about the time I really got into typology. I've used that, that um, illustration about um, as David defeated Goliath with his own sword. He doesn't defeat him with the sword and the sling. He defeats him with his sword, and he'll later go get that sword, right? He'll go when yeah. Abimelech will give it to him, and he'll say, all I have is the sword. The priest will say, all I have here is the sword of Goliath of Gath, and David says, there's none like it. Give it to me. <laughs> and um, I think Edwards is right in the typology. I mean, David's a federal head for Israel. Goliath's a federal head for the, the uh, Philistines. Whoever wins that battle wins it for their people. Clearly, the old covenant enemies of the church are types of Satan's kingdom. Clearly, Satan's behind them. Their gods are demonic gods, and, and Yahweh is the true and the living God. And so I think the whole Genesis 3.15 exposition there, Jeff, that you pointed out, um, with all that typology is amazing. Oh, it, it also is interesting. I don't know if you uh, brothers caught this, but there was almost a bit of the mousetrap understanding of the cross not quite the idea of the, or the fish hook notion uh, of the cross as the trapping he doesn't go that far but he comes ever so close right uh and that's and it's always been granted that the 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 mousetrap or fish hook view of the atonement was powerful in in its preaching appeal yeah and you can see some of that here yeah uh the, the uh now, uh, he goes on, if I may point out, uh, to talk about the conjunction of different excellencies, even in his exalted state, 
uh, on page 581. Yes. Tis still manifest in his acts, in his present state of exaltation in heaven. Indeed, in his exalted state, he most eminently appears in a manifestation of those excellencies on the account of which he is compared to a lion, but still he appears as a lamb. And then we jump down a little. Though Christ be now at the right hand of God, exalted as King of heaven and Lord of the universe, yet he is still in the human nature. He still excels in humility. Though the man Christ Jesus be the highest of all creatures in heaven, yet he as much excels them in all humility as he doth in glory and dignity. For none see so much of the distance between God and him as he does. And though he now appears in such glorious majesty and dominion in heaven, yet he appears as a lamb in his condescending, mild, and sweet treatment of his saints there. For he is a lamb still, even in the midst of the throne of his exaltation. And he that is the shepherd of the whole flock is himself a lamb and goes before them in heaven as such. Yeah, that's awesome that, you know, I had somebody in my Sunday school class actually ask the question, and maybe you guys could answer this, that because the Bible says in the consummation that Christ will turn the kingdom over to the Father and then God will be all in all, and then do you all think it's, do you think it's probable that Jesus will forever bear the wounds as of, as, as of a lamb which is slain for eternity so that we remember and know um, what he was for us and what he was to God? Or do you think at some point that will pass away? Because Edward seems to think he's always going to be a lamb. My opinion is yes, for a couple of reasons. One, from a biblical standpoint, his wounds are part of his glorified presentation. Right. In other words, he, he appears glorified with those wounds. And so he can say to the disciples, he can show himself wounded to his disciples, right? Right. But I think from a theological standpoint, because his, uh, his wounds, which are the evidence of his atoning work, are part of the basis at the heart of, of, um, of, our, of our acceptability before the Father, they will always be what they are. Uh, and so it kind of gets back to the, the, the hymn, you know, of Wesley, five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. So his wounds are part of his intercessory uh, identity, if I can say right. it that way. Right, right. Yeah, I tend to agree, and I, um, yeah, I think do. that Edward's argument here is strong that Jesus will appear. I love, and, and actually he could have done a whole other sermon on the fact that on Judgment Day, the last paragraph right before the application section of the sermon, um, I love how Edwards talks about these excellencies are going to appear most fully on Judgment Day when Jesus is going to be a lion for the wicked. He's going to be the devouring um, judge of the wicked. He says he will then appear. Um, he will then appear in the most dreadful and amazing manner to the wicked. The devils tremble at the thought of that appearance. And when it shall be, the kings and the great men and the rich men and the chief captives and the mighty men and every bondman, every free man shall hide themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains and shall cry to the mountains and rocks to fall on them and hide them from the face and the wrath of the lamb. But he will also appear as a lamb to his saints. 
He will receive them as friends and brethren, treating them with infinite mildness and love. He shall be nothing in him terrible to them, but towards them he will clothe them wholly with sweetness and endearment. You know, I was thinking about this too, guys, that Edwards at the outset of the sermon talks about how nothing is so different than a lion and a lamb. Mm. that a, a, a lamb is actually the most susceptible prey to a lion, which mm-hmm. is a very fitting thought if you think about the fact that Jesus said, you know, my father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the son, that on judgment day, the one who is going to pour out all his wrath is the one who already took all that wrath for us so that the judge is our savior, truly and really. You know, Judgment Day, I had just read this sermon and I thought about this. You know, our sermons ought to be Christ-centered because Judgment Day is going to be Christ-centered. Mm. But that's good news mm-hmm. for us who believe. And you know, the way we you know? view Christ, um, yeah, I, I wonder if there's, you know, a way we can think of Edward's sermon here and our efforts to view Christ with these poles held together. You know, on the one hand infinitely high, infinitely condescended, you know, justice, grace, lion, lamb, all of these things, which seem to be so, as you said earlier, you know, paradoxical, they seem to be so opposite, yet they're held together in in the person of Christ. I wonder if there's an already not yet aspect to this, because now we, we struggle to see how can Christ be both of these things, this, this excellent conjunction of, of, um, of attributes, of excellencies, etc. And then we say, okay, here he is glorified, and we know, I mean, from the very text that, that he's quoting from, from Revelation, right, there's, uh, you know, Revelation begins with this exalted view of Christ, with his feet of bronze, and the white hair, and the eyes that burn like fire, etc. Yet, in the same breath, John says he appears like a, a lamb that is slain. We struggle to get these opposites to come together in our view of Christ. How can Christ be this glorified one who can appear uh, amidst the disciples through a locked door at the same time have have wounds present in his body? And I think about when Edwards preaches in another sermon, the, the pure in heart shall see God from 1 John 3. He speaks of our vision of Christ being a vision unencumbered by sin, unencumbered by the fall, etc., and we see Christ as he is, as John says. And he speaks of it as an immediate sight of the soul, an immediate intimate knowing of Christ as he really is. And so in the, when the not yet becomes you know, manifest reality, we'll have, the ability, uh, we'll have the ability to see the fullness of who he is so that we're not torn. But, well, is he a lamb? Is he a lion? We see the fullness of who he is right. uh, immediately then. Right. And so... We, we will have no trouble understanding how is it, you know, as, as John says in Revelation 14.10, that the wicked are tormented in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the lamb, right? We might, we might rather say, well, wouldn't that, shouldn't that be in the presence of the lion? Right. Because the lion is more of the, of the strong, the, the, you know, the, uh, the, the, the predatory type of creature, yet John says they're tormented in the presence of the lamb. Right. And I think in that already not yet hermeneutic, um, we're, we're going to be able to see him fully for who he is and see the, this conjunction of excellencies on full display, and there won't seem to be such a paradox to us then. Yeah, that's, that's outstanding. Um, really, this sermon, and, and we will just briefly here as we close touch on the applications, but 
this sermon gives us so much to meditate on spiritually. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm reading back over this even as we talk and listening to you guys talk about this. And I'm thinking, wow, it is. It, it takes your minds to new heights when you think about Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb that was slain and all that that means. Um, when he does come to make these applications, he'll talk about a number of things. Um, uh, probably the most significant is when he comes down to um, an application to what he says is the poor, burdened, distressed soul. And I love this because this is where Edwards is preeminently pastor. He writes, what are you afraid of that you dare not venture your soul upon Christ? Are you afraid that he can't save you, that he's not strong enough to conquer the enemies of your soul? But how can you desire one stronger than the mighty God, as Christ is called in Isaiah 9, 6? Is there need of greater, is there, is there need of greater than infinite strength? Are you afraid that he won't be able to willing to stoop so low as to take any gracious notice of you? But look then on him as he stood in the ring of soldiers, exposing his blessed face to be buffeted and spit upon by them. Behold him bound with his back uncovered to those that smote him. Behold him hanging on that cross. Do you think that he had condescension enough to stoop to these things and that for his crucifiers will be unwilling to accept of you if you come to him? Or are you afraid that if he does accept you, that God the Father won't accept of him for you? But consider, will God reject his own son in whom his infinite delight is and has been from all eternity? And that is so united to him that if he should reject him, he would reject himself. That is an awesome pastoral application. Absolutely. It really is. is. And then you think about the application is an effort to say, I've presented Christ in his beauty and in his loveliness. Does this not induce you to desire him, to want him? And so, you know, it touches back on what you said earlier, Nick, about folks who think Edwards is just so morbidly introspective and so forth. I'm telling you, I, I don't know of many who show the desirability and the loveliness of Christ, the way Edwards does. And he speaks of him as the cream of all of our pleasures. And so it's as if he is saying, how can you not desire one as beautiful and as strong as, as this one? If you think about it, again, he's taking his text from Revelation. What was, what was the Holy Spirit doing through the Apostle John for churches that were facing persecution, having fears of all kinds of enemies, when he presented Christ as both lamb and lion, able to comfort, able to defend, so that they would desire him and take comfort in him. Yeah, and um, he rounds out this sermon with one of the richest, I think, um, expositions of the benefit of union with Christ, that this Christ that, in essence, Edwards is saying, this Christ that I've just told you about, this Christ who has all these excellencies, this Christ who um, is all of these things in himself and has done all that he has done, um, to uphold perfect justice and perfect grace and mercy, to be everything that is needed. This Christ you are united to if you're a believer, and in glory you're going to have, he, what he says, a more glorious union, a greater enjoyment of God the Father. And then he ends it by rounding it out by just essentially saying, listen, in heaven we're all going to be united as one. Everybody who's with him, everyone who has been purchased by the Lamb, that we are going to be 
united perfectly with him, with his father. He says, um, quoting John seventeen twenty one, the words of Jesus, that they all may be one as you, Father, are me and I in them, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me, and the glory which you have given me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. He says, Christ has brought it to pass that those that the Father has given him should be brought into the household of God, that he and his Father and his people should be, as it were, one society, one family, that the church should be, as it were, admitted into the society of the blessed Trinity. Mm. And that's amazing mm. that he basically spells out, oh, hey, beautiful. The, the biggest yeah. thing this accomplishes is that we are forever going to be united together with the triune God in perfect unbroken fellowship and harmony and enjoyment and glory. And um, it's really amazing. It's really amazing when you think about this is the richest. It doesn't get any deeper than that in our meditations of what's to come because, because of the lion and the lamb. Um, any closing thoughts from either of you on this sermon or advice just, to our listeners? Just once again, the, the role of the Trinity in Christology in Edwards' theological and homiletical program, is once again on <laughs> marvelous display. Yes, yes. Uh, I was thinking, I've never, I don't think I've ever been tempted to plagiarize anybody's sermons, but I have to be honest, this one would come close to being, you know, the sermon I would love to preach uh, on the the conjunction of, of diverse excellencies in, in the person and work of Christ. Amazing. Amen. Um, Powerful. Well, um, we want to thank you guys for being on the show. Um, if you all are interested in uh, reading more or, or listening to more of Jeff's, uh, Jeff's public ministry uh, media and resources, you can find him at the Reformed Forum, reformedforum.org. You can find him often as a panelist on Christ the Center. Uh, over at the Reform Forum. You can also find him blogging some at feedingonchrist.com. And then uh, if you want to find some of Jeff's sermons, I know that he preaches uh, in various PCA and OPC churches throughout the New Jersey and and Philadelphia area, Pennsylvania area, and uh, over there at the church that he is the teaching elder of. That is Calvary OPC in Ringo's, New Jersey, and that is Calvary slash Amwell.org. Is that right, Jeff? That's correct. That's correct. Calvary dash amwell.org. You can find Dave on the web at teachinglikerain.wordpress.com. He also has a sermon series. I saw that Scott Sauls posted one of your sermons on Twitter today at some point. I think it was today or last night. It was from yesterday's uh, worship service here at Christ Pres, Romans 8, 15 to 18. And what is the URL? What is the the domain name there for Christ Pres? It's www.christprez.org. So you want to go check out Dave over there, listen to some of his sermons, and read him on his blog. If you get a chance to attend Dave's course on the theology of Jonathan Edwards coming up just at the turn of 2013 at RTS Charlotte, please be on the lookout for that. Visit their website. Call the administration office for more details on that. Know that you'll be richly blessed by his ministry there. And uh, we thank you for joining us again for another episode of East of Eden, the Biblical and Systematic Theology of Jonathan Edwards. We hope that you'll tune in again. Thanks. Thanks.